Hello, I'm Frankie Cotton, and you're listening to What Does Green Really Mean? A brand new podcast series that dives into what sustainability really means to separate fact from fiction and uncover the stories of those who are building our future. This week, meet Tessa Khan. Tessa is an international climate change and human rights lawyer, campaigner and strategist. She is the founder of Uplift, a social organisation that supports and energises the movement for a fossil fuel-free UK. Before Uplift, Tessa set up the Climate Litigation Network, taking national governments to court over their insufficient climate policies. Tessa has also delivered a rallying TEDx talk, was named by Time magazine as one of the 15 women leading the fight against climate change, and is an awardee of the Climate Breakthrough Project. Hearing Tessa's insights on the levers for change in the climate crisis is refreshing and mobilising. In the face of overwhelming climate anxiety and feeling like we have no power, Tessa lays out pathways for action. She reassures us that what we've learned through the pandemic is how to deal with crises under pressure, that we're vulnerable, but we can mobilise fast. For all of us, knowing that we have agency matters in the face of huge odds. And the truth is there is so much that we can all do. And we are at a moment in history when we still have time to shift things. I hope you love Tessa as much as I did. You can join us on Twitter at Green Really Mean. And if you love listening to us, please rate and review and subscribe wherever you're listening. Thanks so much. Tessa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Frankie. It's a real pleasure to be here. Oh, thank you so much for for sharing your time with us. If I may, I'd like to start by asking you about something you acknowledge um, right at the start of the TED Talk you gave back in December 2018, which was very much a different world, I think, to where we are now. But you recognise that the people listening don't necessarily look forward to talking about climate change and perhaps they feel guilty or they don't know how to make an impact or it just feels so overwhelming. And I wonder how you hold those conversations about climate change when we can feel overwhelmed and perhaps even shut down. Mm. Where, where do you start and how do you create that that sort of atmosphere for people and that, I don't know, that sort of sense of holding them through through the conversation? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think the the part that is hard um, to hear for people and that can make them, I think, shrink from the conversation is the scale of the problem, you know, the honest truth about the scale of the crisis that we're facing and the urgency in the timeline on which we have to act if we're going to avert the worst impacts of climate change. Um, so I think that's what's naturally difficult for people to hear because it is it is frightening um and I say that as someone who you know reads the science and um the reporting on climate change every day and it never gets any less scary um and I think it's important to acknowledge that and be honest about that but I think actually what I think is really important for people to both feel that way but then not feel completely disempowered is to actually remind people that they still have so much agency and power actually to do something um, about the climate crisis and that, you know, there's no question that this is because of the scale of it, it's something that we have to do collectively. Mm. But, you know, every collective is made up of individuals. Mm -hmm. And so um, just to really remind people that we do have power um, and we can hold the people who are, you know, in charge of the big decisions and the big structures and the big institutions to account for what they're doing. Yeah. And actually, it would be great to to talk about that, as you mentioned it. I guess 
who are, from the work that you do, who are the actors who are really responsible for climate change? And where's the sort of the big impact coming from? Mm. You mean the impact in terms of the actual climate crisis or? Yeah. Yeah. So there are really two groups of actors, I would say, that are responsible um, and that are responsible for the impacts of the climate crisis. Um, the first is the fossil fuel industry. So, you know, climate change is the result of an increasing concentration in our atmosphere, not to get too technical, um, of carbon dioxide. And the principal driver of emissions of carbon dioxide or carbon pollution is us burning fossil fuels. So that's oil, gas and coal predominantly. So it's the companies that are extracting fossil fuels, selling it to us, who are in many ways responsible for where we're at. And that responsibility stems not just from the fact that they are selling the product to us and thereby creating demand as well, Mm. um, but that they've actually known about the fact that their products are responsible for climate change. And over the last, you know, and the first acknowledgements, you know, within these big companies date back to the 1960s, Mm. that their internal reporting and analysis and scientists were saying, hang on a second, you know, burning these products that we're profiting from. It's not good. Yeah, it's not, it's really not good. And they were eerily accurate in terms of their forecasts of what the ultimate impacts of that would be, like the extreme weather, the wildfires, the, you know, those sorts of changing conditions. And they made a deliberate decision starting decades ago to try to bury that science and mislead the public and create, you know, think tanks and a whole network of institutions to cast doubt on science that has an overwhelming consensus underpinning it. You know, the latest reports show that, you know, there was a report that came out just a couple of weeks ago from the world's most authoritative body on climate change and it had the contributions of hundreds of scientists to it and the consensus is universal about in terms of what's causing climate change, Mm. you know, how much Mm. damage it's doing and, and what we have to do to stop it. So, The fossil fuel industry continues to this day to spend billions of dollars lobbying against action on climate change and continuing to sow those seeds of doubt. Um, I think they're also responsible for making us feel as individuals like this is a problem that we've caused. Very (laughs) smart at doing that, right? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, genius Mm. PR move. And, you know, the fossil fuel industry is actually responsible for creating the idea of an individual carbon footprint. That was their idea. And that is a brilliant way of shifting the onus onto Mm. us for a whole world of, you know, consumption and choice that they've created. yeah. So that's, that's, I think, the first and in many ways the most kind of culpable industry. The second, though, sorry. No, I was Go just going to say, I mean, and this is probably the eternal question of, of the work that you do, but, you know, before we move on to, to perhaps the second actor is, is talking about fossil fuel industry is how do you, what can we do in a capitalist society about that? Because, mm. you know, like you say, if, if you get to this point where you're so gigantic that you have, um, you know, you have access to billions of dollars to do these things and to create these campaigns and to cast doubt on science and, and really kind of manipulate mm. people's um, psychology and their understanding mm-hmm. of, of what is facts and what is science, which is, you know, a huge problem in many aspects today. Um, but yeah, I guess is that something that you 
we'll come on to climate litigation, I guess, in a, in a minute. But how how do we even in tackle these issues specifically within the businesses, you know, in the kind of capitalism side? Yeah, I mean, that actually brings me on to the second actor that I think is really responsible for this, which is the only, really the only institution that can control the fossil fuel industry, that can create the frameworks for shifting away from production of fossil fuels, and that is national governments. So they don't just create the sort of frameworks, regulatory frameworks in which these companies operate. They are currently subsidising the fossil fuel industry to the tune of billions of pounds every year. So the UK um, government alone spends hundreds of millions of pounds in, you know, especially in recent years, basically propping up oil and gas producers within the UK. So there are active choices that our governments are making to support that industry, even though there every single other dynamic is pushing in the opposite direction, you know, in terms of renewable technology, in terms of the climate crisis, everything is telling us that we need to shift away from fossil fuels as fast as possible. But governments are actively encouraging and supporting that industry. Um, and that's that's partly because of the way that that industry is lobbied and captured in many ways, the policy processes. But because our governments are accountable to us, that is, I think, the really powerful lever that we have in all of this. And just to, I guess, really round out the point about the responsibility that governments have in this context. So they've, you know, they first signed an international agreement vowing to tackle climate change in 1992. And... Since 1992, we've emitted more carbon into the atmosphere than we did in the previous 100 years. So they have 100% failed to follow through on the promises that they've been making at the international level. And again, that's, you know, a driver of litigation and, and we can talk more about that. But they're ultimately the ones who shape our economies, who make decisions about which industries are invested in, you know, which ones get support, what targets and policies we set for transition. Um, so the buck really stops, I think, with in, in a, you know, in a democracy with our governments because they, they really have all of the levers at their disposal. Mm, mm. And they're the very, um, you know, the very people who should be conducting those checks and balances, like you say, in a democratic society. So then I wonder to perhaps come on a bit more, Tessa, about kind of the work that you do. And before we get into the detail, I wonder... Where did it all start for you? How did you get into the world of, of climate change, climate litigation? I know you're a humans, human rights lawyer, so maybe you can tell us a little bit about that and your, your own personal journey. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, so as you say, I was working internationally as a human rights lawyer and campaigner. Um, and it was sort of in the early to mid-2010s. Um, I was working in Asia um, on, you know, as a human rights lawyer and campaigner. And, and it became quite clear to me that actually climate change is the biggest systemic threat to our human rights that we currently face. You know, it will undermine everything, the, you know, very foundation of the kinds of lives and livelihoods that we currently have. Um, and so it just became increasingly clear to me and of course in you know in Asia a lot of those countries are the most vulnerable to the impacts of climate change mm -hmm. and so you could you know already start to see some of those impacts manifesting and having totally catastrophic effects so that was for me the 
the real motivation to, to start focusing on climate change. Um, my family is also from Bangladesh. It's where a lot of my family still lives. And that's by any measure, one of the most vulnerable countries in the world too, for example, sea level rise. So that was, so I started to think, you know, yeah, if I'm really serious about human rights, it's impossible not to think about climate change. Um, mm -hmm. And I heard about this case that these, um, and, you know, a bit, I guess, connected to what I was saying before, I was also very aware that the international agreements that governments have been coming up with just aren't really leading to action at the national level, which is what we need. Um, and I heard about this case in 2015 that these Dutch lawyers had brought against the Dutch government, which was the first case in the world in which they were basically trying to get a court to order the government to more aggressively reduce the country's greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and I, and, and they won. Amazing. <laughs> and it was huge news. You know, it was kind of like front page BBC, New York Times. And I was like, this is a huge breakthrough um, because it does give us a way of actually holding governments accountable for those promises that have so far gone completely unfulfilled. And so I basically cold called them and <laughs> I love that. <laughs> um, and sort of said, you know, I think what you guys have done is amazing and I would love to work with you to help, you know, activists and campaigners and individuals in other countries around the world learn from what you've done and replicate your mm. strategy in their own countries. And they're like, perfect timing because we're actually hearing um, from people around the world who want to, to learn from us. So, yeah, great. If you want to do this, let's do this. And so I quit my job and we set up this organisation called the Climate Litigation Network, um, which then went on in subsequent years to really support and seed cases in, you know, a bunch of different countries, including a case that was successful against the Irish government, the first case filed against an East Asian government in South Korea. And now it's just wow. this huge... There's this huge amount of momentum now to use litigation against governments specifically to get them to be more ambitious about climate change. So that was, I think, yeah, one of the best cold emails I've ever sent. Yeah, yeah, um, I can imagine. Yeah, and that was really the kind of the entry point for me. So then how did you go from that to, to where you are at Uplift? And I wonder if maybe you mm. could tell us a bit specifically about kind of what Uplift does and and yeah, and the work that you do there. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, as I said, uh, by early last year, you, there was so much momentum behind climate litigation globally, the kind of climate cases that we had sought to, to support, um, that I just started to wonder if there was something else, you know, that I could be doing. Um, and also acknowledging that the world was a very different place in 2020 to what it mm. was. I mean, this was just after the pandemic hit. To what it was in 2015 and 2016. Um, and one of the things that had become clear by the start of last year is that uh, we need to rapidly transition away from, from producing, from pulling more oil and gas out of the ground. Um, so there had been some really important mm. reports published by the UN that showed that actually we are on track to produce, you know, almost double the amount of oil and gas that we can produce if we're going to hit our climate goals. So forget you and I like 
reducing our individual carbon footprints. There is this whole industry that is continuing to basically go about business as usual as though there isn't a climate crisis, you know, as though we don't need to transition. Um, And I also found out that the UK is the second largest oil and gas producer in Europe. And that's something that I think people just don't know about. And even within the climate movement, you know, there's been a real focus on coal, um, which, you know, you and your listeners may know the UK has been one of the leading countries in the world of phasing out the use of coal-fired power. And that's been brilliant. But the next big frontier for us is oil and gas. And that's where, in many ways, the industry is most powerful, as I said, where they have no plans at all to wind down production in line with what we need if we're going to meet our climate goals. Um, And I just thought that the UK really is in the best possible position to lead on that transition away from oil and gas production. You know, we have the resources, the know-how, the leadership, you know, Mm -hmm. if we want it, the public's behind action on climate change. And we could set an amazing example um, for the rest of the world as to how to do it in a way that is also just you know, that doesn't throw workers and communities under the bus. Yeah. And I think, and that's, you know, when I was reading about the work that you do, I think that's one of the things that really kind of struck me and I think sticks out is that, yeah, how how you make this uh, a win-win strategy for everybody um, and how you make sure that, you know, everybody who's involved in that industry obviously is is supported and it's a sustainable change. Um, And then I guess, how can you, how could you argue with that change if if that's the way you approach it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think um, what has become really clear is that actually the workers in those industries, they themselves see the writing on the wall. Um, They know that it's no longer a secure and sustainable form of employment the way that it was Mm -hmm. decades ago. And there was a survey done of the oil and gas workforce in the UK and it showed that an overwhelming majority of them would consider leaving um, the oil and gas sector if they got, you know, the right support to do that. Um, And, of course, you know, these people also care about climate change Um, So they've got to answer hard questions that their kids and grandkids are asking them. Um, And the fact is that because of the fact that, you know, we are transitioning away, markets are transitioning away from oil and gas, there's huge amounts of volatility in that sector. So, you know, last year alone there were tens of thousands of jobs that were lost when the oil price mm-hmm. crashed. And that happens every time. Um, and so it's just, it's, it's a question for us whether or not we want to ignore the problem and lead them to a collapse of the industry, which would be the worst possible outcome for those workers. Or if we want to be proactive about it, work with them to figure out what the support is that they need to transition into the industries that do have a future. Um, and often, you know, they've got the skills for example, that would be needed for offshore wind or renewables, um, given the kind of Mm, parallels mm. between those industries. So as I said, I really see this as an opportunity if we want to treat it that way. Yeah. And if we can basically break the power of the of the industry and the lobby who desperately are clinging on, you know, to the status quo. Yeah. Yeah. And and what does that look like, you know, practically 
on a day-to-day level? And I know that might sound like a silly question, but I mean, the, the power that any of us have is, is what we do with our time, like right now. So, so what can you, can you tell us a bit maybe about how the organization works or kind of what you do on a day-to-day to kind of actually make these sort of big strategic changes and, and, mm. you know, support with, with this change and lobby the right people, I guess, to, to move forward? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think because as I said, um, last year, it seemed to me like there just was barely any understanding of the UK's oil and gas industry and Mm. how much we're, you know, pulling out of the North Sea every day, the fact that we don't have any plans to wind that production down. There just seemed to be a huge sort of education task that needed to be done. So a big part of our work, at least initially, is to try to break break that all down for people, not just within who are already kind of signed up members to the climate movement, um, but just more broadly, because I think people are concerned. That That is so clear that people are really concerned. Um, they just feel like they don't have the kind of facts. And as you say, they don't know who to hold accountable for these decisions, like who to lobby or who to ask to change or make the right decision. So we're trying to really map all of that out and to share that with, you know, our partners and different groups, including, you know, parents groups and student, the student movement and so on, so that it's on their radar that this is something that they can take action on. Yeah. Yeah. And Tessa, I wanted just to come back to a point that we were making earlier around kind of communication, I guess, and, and perhaps communication online, because I guess a lot of the work that you've done has has been online and and probably will continue to be partly because of the pandemic and partly, you know, for reach and other reasons. But do you practically come across those sort of issues of communicating online where you where you come across, I don't want to say climate deniers, I don't think that's fair, but misinformation, is that a real problem for you that you experience regularly? Um, I think the bigger problem for us isn't sort of misinformation in the in the strict sense in that it's not kind of people lying. Um, but it is, I think our biggest challenge is that the industry is, of course, incredibly well-resourced, incredibly powerful. Um, and they have an army of people developing the best talking points, you know, the best kind of narratives that defend the position that they're in. And I think we've done an amazing job, you know, together with our partners. This has been a huge movement of people of putting the industry on the defensive. Um, Mm. But they are more for sure, (laughs) they are out-resourcing us by who knows how many factors. Um, So it's a challenge for us to cut through some of that spin, I think. And, you know, they also have access to the media um, in ways Mm. that we just don't. So that is the biggest challenge for us. But I think, again, as is always the, the case in these sort of David versus Goliath battles, I mean, I'm confident that it really matters that we are right, <laughs> that we have uh, the moral high ground here. You know, we are not just acting in the private interest, which is what these companies are trying to do just to make money for themselves and their shareholders, but we're trying to do something on behalf of everyone. Um and I think ultimately that can be and that will be the more powerful story 
that gets mm. told. Yeah, and I can imagine that's very difficult, particularly kind of with the the PR spin and like the resourcing behind the storytelling aspect, especially in light of the pandemic, I think, which has, well, which not just that I think, which we know has rocked economies around the world and people are quite rightly concerned about their futures and their finances. And I wonder how... Has the pandemic impacted the work that you do? Or I guess you've kind of been moving with it as you've been going, right? But but perhaps looking back now, do you think some of it has been net good? Do you think it's been negative? Do you think people are more engaged perhaps in in these kind of conversations or, or less so? What's your sort of litmus test, I guess, on, on how the public are feeling at the moment? Yeah, I mean, I think... Um, obviously the, the first and most overwhelming impact of it is just tragedy, right? So it's hard to sort of talk about any real silver lining. Um, but I think in terms of the, what it's done to the public is that it's actually made it clear to us that we are going to be dealing with crises that impact us directly now in a rich country like the UK, you know, pandemics which have been kind of talked about for ages. It's just not something that any of us ever considered would have the totally transformative effect on our lives that it's had. It means we can't see our family, we can't travel, you know, we have are in huge amounts of financial insecurity, as you said. Um, and I think it's just made people really take stock of the fact of how vulnerable we all are that you know of course while some people are more vulnerable than others no question that we cannot insulate ourselves from these sorts of global crises and if the kind of flooding in Germany and Belgium and the wildfires in Greece and you know Turkey and so on haven't made that even clearer you know the climate crisis is also here on our doorstep um, and I think COVID has made people appreciate that that's not just some far off story that we hear about but like it, it you know we are so vulnerable and ultimately um just a yeah kind of totally vulnerable to the conditions that we live in so i think that's been helpful for getting people to take the climate crisis seriously i think the other thing that it's done is that it's also showed us what governments at their best can do um in a crisis you know i mean the vaccine rollout in the UK has was an amazing, you know, especially in the early days, was an amazing feat of cooperation and investment and, you know, within the UK um, specifically. And I found it incredibly moving, you know, when I got my vaccine, like just the scale of the operation, that it was running so smoothly and um, and even the extent to which the government has has made a decision to step in and pay people's salary. You know, at one point it was paying the salaries of more than 10 million people in the UK, I think, when the follow scheme was at its height. So it, it is open to governments to, yeah, it is possible, exactly, to make, to make a decision to do things differently, to curb a crisis, um, and we're not just totally powerless in the face of the forces of capitalism or, you know, whatever else. Um, and I think it means that we can be more demanding of our governments to, to take responsibility. So that's, I think, on the whole been, yeah, been quite enlightening as well. Yeah, yeah, I, I can see that. And, and I wonder, Tessa, kind of for you specifically and, and the work that you do at Uplift, I mean, I know part of what you do is to sort of 
energize and mobilize people. And I wonder how you, as somebody who works in this space, how you stay energized yourself um, in the face of the, the scale of the problem and some of these things and, and how you, you can constantly, or perhaps perhaps you don't, I don't know, but, but keep showing up with that energy and that positivity and, and that sort of will to, to fight for what you know is right. Um, and I guess somehow keep a barrier or something to, to not internalize the fear, the negativity, the anxiety, um, and kind of stay on the right side of where you need to be, I guess, in order to, to be most impactful in the work that you do. Yeah. But, um, I, I think, I think for me, I, I still feel like I have a lot of agency, you know, in this fight and I believe in the fight. It doesn't matter that the odds are hugely challenging or that the scale of it is massive. I still feel like that not only is there a lot for us that we can do, but that in many ways we are at this moment in history when we know what the scale of the challenge is and we still have time to really shift things. Um, not that there's ever going to be a point at which the door closes completely. I think it's important to be clear about that. Um, it's always, you know, every fraction of a degree of climate change matters. But, you know, in terms of really turning things around, there is still this window of opportunity that we have. And that's an amazing kind of moment in history to be a part of. So I... I, yeah, I feel really energized by that, I think. I think the other thing is, um, you know, I always sort of say to people that the most surefire way to generate hope is to actually take action and to do it with other people. Like action creates hope, not the other way around. Don't, you know, you don't wait to feel for that magical feeling that you think you're going to win or, you know, it, that will come as soon as you start exercising your agency and exercising your power and if you do it with other people as I do every day and I'm lucky to have amazing colleagues and amazing partners um, and I feel lucky to work alongside them you know and I find their dedication and their energy inspiring as well um, and then of course I guess like so many of us and you know it's a fine line between this and guilt but I also feel responsibility as one of the very, very privileged few from a global perspective who can choose to, to dedicate themselves to this, who can do this and still live an incredibly comfortable life, you know. Um, and so, of course, that, that creates for me, you know, a, a drive in terms of responsibility. And I definitely um, believe in you know, joy in other parts of my life and cultivating that and not taking, you know, not taking myself seriously, even in the work that I do. I mean, I know that I'm a tiny, tiny part of this and um, just to try to keep that perspective. So, mm. yeah, I think that that kind of works for me. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I, I can see that. And um yeah, and I and I love that to sort of stay grounded and as you say, action creates hope. And I think it's important 
to remember that and even just small action can make you feel like you have some agency or you're doing something and and that's really what I was was what I was going to ask you was you know for anyone listening to this podcast um I was saying just before we started recording that a lot of people that listen to this podcast are are business leaders or leaders within various types of organizations um also proactive consumers and people who are just focused on 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 creating impact in some way I guess specifically to link into what you do what what can we do to support uplift um and to support um you know the the work you do um I think it's not so much about supporting um uplift although you're very welcome to donate there's a donate button on our website um to support our work but it's it's really just about joining us you know in whatever capacity you have and I think that's the other thing about this this fight is that it it's so big that everyone has something to offer, no matter what you do, no matter what your qualifications or how much time you have, you know, whether anything from emailing your MP to making snacks for the people who are going on marches to, you know, t- talking to your friends. And, and actually, this is in many ways the most powerful multiplier that you can get involved in is just like spreading the word, you know, telling people and people really listen to the people that they trust. So you have a lot of power within your own circles. Um, of course, for those of your listeners who are, you know, running their own businesses and who therefore have a slightly bigger circle of influence in that respect, you know, it's it's really important to also be ambitious about what action you're taking on climate change. Um, but as I said, this is ultimately a problem that we are going to solve together not as individuals. So it is about building that collective however you can. Got it. Tessa, thank you so much. And thank you for talking to me. And it's been such a pleasure. And I will put all the links to everything in the show notes, the link to that important donate button. <laughs> and of course, um, your brilliant TED Talk, which I think listeners should also check out if they haven't already. But just before we end, I would just like to give you the floor. Is there anything that we've not discussed or mentioned that you would like to pass on or share with the listeners? I, I think maybe just to, to stress that we are at a turning point and that if you have any inclination to get involved, let that inclination be the thing that moves you rather than all of the doubts that you have about what you can contribute or how much of an expert you are. Um, I would really encourage people, people to get involved. And there's, you know, as I said, so much to be done. And even within our own work, which is really focused on on trying to get the UK to move away from oil and gas production, you know, there are campaigns and conversations happening, um, particularly around one oil field at the moment called the Cambo oil field uh, that would be a massive new development if the government allows it to go ahead. Um, and we need everyone on board to stop that because, as I said, we're taking on the most powerful industry in the world. So we need everyone on board. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Frankie. It's been a real pleasure.